everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative, storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling with you and with me, as always, is my partner in crime, Brandon Odo. You. With us is another voice that will be familiar to listeners, a friend of the podcast, Dr. Matt Shuba, who is an intensivist at the Cleveland Clinic and also the master of Zintensivism. We're going to talk today a little bit about APPs and attendings and the relationship between the two. Brian, you make it sound like the podcast has more friends than me. (laughs) Well, I don't know your life. Maybe it (laughs) All right. Well, look. Um, There's more friends than me. Like. <laughs> I, I thought this would be an interesting topic because, of course, Brian and I are uh, respectively uh, a nurse practitioner and physician assistant. And um, one of the things that entails is that the way we practice medicine is collaboratively alongside um, physicians, uh, attending usually intensivists. And what that relationship looks like and how it works is uh, depends on the setting and, and, and on each of us. But it, it really, it is fundamental to how we, how we work. Every, every single day we come and uh, show up on our shifts and then certainly on a, a bigger picture level when we look at what our, our clinical work really looks like. This is, I think, one of the key features of it. And when it works well, it allows us to have sort of satisfactory, fulfilling careers. And when it doesn't work well, it can be a, a real problem. Um, and at the end of the day, it's about people and relationships. So there's kind of no right hard answers. But I thought it was worth exploring. And I think an important part of that is probably getting both sides of, uh, of the picture. So, of course, Brian and I can represent the... I think we're mostly calling them APPs these days, PAs and NPs collectively. There are others, but that's generally what you'll see practicing in critical care. And then Matt kind of has the other perspective. And you got to clarify for me, Matt. Um, I know you you have worked with residents and fellows, so you have had that kind of supervisory relationship. But you do also work with APPs, is that right? Yes, pretty much every day I come to work. Uh, It's slightly different depending on the precise hospital, the time of the day. Um, But I would say more often than not, I'm working uh, in collaboration with an APP on on the team. Okay. And Brian and I have talked in the past about exactly how those staffing models can work. Oftentimes it's either or. You can have units that are largely or mostly APP staffed along with the physician, and then you could have others that are more based around the house staff, like residents, and then we sort of are woven in there, replacing some number of them and supplementing. Um, and you also, it was, I mean, time flies, but it, it really was only a handful of years ago that you were a fellow as well, right? Right. So you, I, I think you kind of have that perspective as well, because, you know, fellows are also supervised in a, you know equivalent sort of relationship. So I guess just to start out, what are your general thoughts on this topic? How do you kind of look at that relationship you have with these people? And do you have some general philosophies for making it effective? 
Well, you know, I, I, I'd like to think I do. I don't know if I'm, I, I don't know if I could be doing it better or not, but in general, uh, I think I, I really value the relationship, uh, that I have with our APP team. We have a pretty big team. I think it's, it's north of 40 or 50, uh, uh, practitioners now considering all of our uh, regional hospitals and things like that. And I have an opportunity to work with the, the vast majority of them. Uh, it's it's a really unique relationship uh, and, and some very positive ways. I, I think the, the thing that I really appreciated about it is the fact that I have dedicated critical care professionals that I get to work with. Uh, you know, all of, a lot of our trainees will rotate in, they'll rotate out. If they're in from internal medicine background, they, they don't spend a ton of time with us. Uh, if they're a pulmonary critical care fellow, they're kind of uh, half and half. Um, but but the the APPs form sort of this con constant uh, that that's always present in, in our units in one way or another. So they tend to know the policies and procedures a little bit better. They have a a better uh, just kind of you know they're they're grounded there right. They're not thinking about their another environment that they're dedicated to. Uh, so that's something I think is really unique um, and, and valuable uh, about that that partnership. Uh, so, and we do have sort of various models where sometimes the APP is embedded into the team. We have some teams that are APP, quote unquote, APP teams. And then we have some settings that we work in where there are no trainees and it's just us and APPs. And there, and there's something unique about each of those settings. And I think there's, you know, there's pros and cons of each of those models. Uh, the, because we've had so much growth over the past few years, I've had the opportunity to see our, our new APPs grow over time. And in fact, now in just the last six months, we just started an APP fellowship uh, for critical care. So uh, what I value about the, the ongoing relationship is you have sort of a dedicated professional to critical care who you can help help grow and watch grow over time. And, and that's something that I think is very uh, unique because it's still, you know, it, it, it just reinforces that idea of lifelong learning uh, across professions, which I think is very valuable. And uh, but based on the way the team is structured, kind of depends on on the specific roles that the the APPs take on. But uh, we we you know there's there's just a ton of uh, value added in having that sort of partnership. Do you think Brian and I have talked about this before? But you know I I don't want to put words in your mouth. You could tell me how you feel about it. It seems like one of the challenges to working with an APP, and maybe one of the rewarding areas too. But it's just more complicated. Is the the breadth that you may encounter there? These are people who may be a new grad with essentially no critical care or even real life medical experience, uh, or it may be someone who's been doing this for 20 years. Um, compared to some of these other roles you supervise that are at least a little more probably clear cut in what you're getting. You know, if you have a resident, you know what their specialty is and what year they are, fellows and so on. Do you find that's sort of true? Yeah, I, I think there's there's... Obviously, there's nuances and there's, you know, especially when I first started, as you mentioned, I've only been out for a few years of training. And so there's this this one dynamic where you say, OK, well, I've just been independently practicing for a month and I'm working with an APP who has been independent for years. Uh, so what you know, what what do we have to offer one another? I, I think that's one one aspect to think about is like when I started, I, I, I felt I had a lot to 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 give in terms of teaching, uh, but also I had some things that I could learn. I think the thing the 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 more that time goes by, no matter what role we're talking about, APP resident, fellow, uh, other attending physicians, the thing that I, I value uh, most is the willingness to grow and learn, uh, because that I think is the the largest determinant of the quality of care that is provided, and then the relationship that we can have with one another. If we're both open minded, 
about uh, our, our strengths, our weaknesses, our things that we want to get better at, then I, I think then that's where the relationship gets really interesting. And I think that is where I find the most value in the, the APP physician relationship is just helping each other grow. And the more that you can do that, then it becomes less of a I'm the captain of the ship and you're somebody that works under me, but more of like, hey, let's do this together as a team, uh, which is really exciting sometimes. If you think a lot of the times, some of my favorite memories of my early, you know, attending life were uh, working in regional hospitals with, with APP teams and like somebody comes in, you know, it's the middle of the night, somebody comes in, they're crashing, they need multiple things done at the same time. We can kind of tag team, do it together. I always value that environment more, whether it's with an APP, a fellow or, or, or another uh, member of the team, but it's just nice to feel like we're all kind of working towards the same goal. We have similar skills that are complementary, maybe somewhat different, but uh, those, those are the moments that I, I really value. But I value them because the people that I worked with in those scenarios were open to new ideas and open to growing their practice. So even if, you, if you've been out for a month or if you've been out for a decade, if you can show me that you still want to learn, then I think we have a lot to offer each other. Yeah, it's nice to work with people. And it seems like that gets less possible sometimes the further you get in your career. Uh, it, it, it does seem, though, like it, one of the challenges when you have people you're working with who have this a lot of variety in their experience level and also potentially the staffing models come into play. Like you said, I, I find it challenging to teach in those sorts of settings because you don't, you may or may not know the level of knowledge of the person you're working with, but also the level of sort of willingness or interest in teaching. And I don't want to make it sound like, you know, some APPs to show up and don't want to learn stuff, but it gets tricky. Um, especially in models that are more heavily APP based because th those do tend to turn into less of teaching services just naturally because the people there are more experienced and, and probably don't need as much of the routine teaching that might go on in an ICU. And there's kind of a fine line between that and, and people sort of not wanting or seeming to want any teaching, which is probably not great because that can easily lead to people stagnating in their in their training. Um, ha have you like figured out a way to navigate this? Yeah, I, I think that is uh, it's it, there are some challenges there. the The biggest thing I think is is uh, yeah, I think if you're if you're talking about a team that has uh, more of an established, this is an APP service, APP physician service, and and you know there's it's not quote unquote teaching. I think every service is a teaching service. Uh, and, and and it doesn't matter to me what uh, the, the official designation of the service is, because uh, I think we all have weaknesses in our fundamental knowledge. And we all have sort of bad habits that we accumulate along the way as we're uh, going through, you know, we, we learned something when we were training, whether it's in our fellowship, your fellowship, or or on the job, that are just not true, or they get refined over time. And we just need to, I think, have the flexibility to grow over time. I find the challenge that occurs most frequently that is somewhat difficult to navigate is, I think we all, as we get further along in our training, or I'm sorry, a lot farther along in our experience, we get a little defensive. Uh, it's, you know, say, oh yeah, I've been doing this for, for five years or 10 years, please don't tell me uh, the mechanism of action or epinephrine, right? Like stuff like that. Okay, that's obvious. But, you know, there are ways that we can all be refining our practice every day. And so I think just finding common ground on that is is helpful. Uh, I try to frame, if I feel like someone's a little more resistant, 
uh, to, to learning or, you know, to acquiring new knowledge from, from me anyway, then I'll, I'll try to couch it in a way that say, Hey, this is something I learned recently. Cause I'm trying to learn all the time. Um, and I'm, I'm honest about that. I'm not going to make stuff up and say, you know, it's a very basic topic that I just learned about the other day, but you know, there are ways that we can refine our existing background knowledge that'll help us take better care of patients. So I think that's the, the cleanest way to navigate that. And I think, yeah, every, every day, every patient is a learning opportunity. And so sometimes if you want to touch on fundamentals, uh, but you don't want to feel like you're directing it at the person that you're working with, then sometimes I, I like to teach towards the nurse, the respiratory therapist, because then you might end up filling in gaps that the uh, APP didn't know that they had. Because um, I do this, honestly, I do the same thing with residents and fellows. So I'll teach to, uh, you know, a different allied health professional about something, hoping that just kind of by being in the vicinity of the person that they'll start to pick up on some of these things. And maybe they'll they'll consider thinking about it differently. Uh, but it is different. I guess the efficiency of workflow is probably different if you're on an all APP team. You're not going to spend 20 minutes talking about hyponatremia in the middle of rounds, which, by the way, I don't do that anyway. But uh, for people that do that, uh, that would be a, a, a practice change. But I think it's just ways of just kind of inserting uh, teaching points or abilities to grow or a little bit of feedback on procedures or, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can go about this because I, I think the most important thing, and again, just to, to hit that point again, is I try to broadcast my openness to learning and improving. And then by extension, hopefully I make it a little safer for for the person I'm working with to feel that way. They can say, hey, you know, I always have this issue at this part of the central line or whatever the procedure is. Would you be willing to show me, you know, how I might think about it differently? So I, I, I think, again, just to make it explicitly clear, I think every environment is a learning environment. It's just about trying to create the atmosphere that's safe for that to happen. Yeah, it's there's definitely situations where people are able to create a learning environment that seems much more natural. I don't know. I almost feel like when you're, when you're teaching more basic concepts, so you know, maybe to something like a, a first year medicine resident or something, the teaching can become more um, sort of canned. Like, you know, you have probably certain topics or, or even just straight up like lectures that you give routinely. Some places have standard curricula for rotating house staff um, and it is basic stuff, so it's just kind of stuff to get through. But that kind of involves you going into, like, teaching mode. Um, and for some of these more nuanced or advanced topics that may be more appropriate for people with more experience, it doesn't have to be that way. It can be more just, like, I mean, how would you discuss, maybe is the better word, or, or teach something with like a colleague that, cause everyone knows stuff other people don't know. I mean, everyone has their areas of, of strength and interest. And you just read an article the other person hasn't heard of yet, or you have an approach or a technique to something. And I think if you kind of look at other people, regardless of their, their level and just think like, is there something this person knows that I don't or vice versa? Do I know something they don't know? Then like, Teaching is not so complicated. It's just sharing those things. It's more when it starts, it, it seems to or actually does create like power dynamics that people get weird about it. Yeah, I, you know, for me, I really, again, just to emphasize, I really am not like a chalk talk in the middle of rounds type of a person. I'm more sort of, I, I try to make my teaching a little bit more practical, pearl driven. Uh, and if I feel like I need to take the time to to do a little bit longer of a session, like with a, a trainee, then I'll do it sometime offline outside of rounds. 
I, I really think that like the lecture during rounds care delivery is like a really inefficient way to learn and, and there's still going to be massive gaps in the learning. So that's more of a timer to say, hey, I'm going to refer you to, you know, no, no matter who it is, I'm going to refer you to this article uh, or this, you know, blog post or whatever you can read about it or this YouTube video, you can read about it, listen to it, and we can talk about it after the fact. But to try to like teach about shock in a half an hour is just like this, I don't to me, that's inefficient. Whereas, yeah, I think if you're working with someone, you're just like, hey, this is a, a pearl I have or something that I came across recently, or, you know, in my experience, I've noticed this. Those are kind of things that are easier to ingest because all your, your, you're just, it, it, it opens the pathway for equal knowledge sharing. And you're just kind of, you know, sharing shop talk and ways that you might optimize things that you're already doing. It's not uh, anchored in the basics. I really don't like to take time, time to do deeper topics on rounds. I, I think it's really inefficient for rounding. I think it's, maybe inconsiderate of, you know, see, you know, people like experienced APPs, uh, experienced fellows, or the nursing staff who has other things that they need to do. I just don't want to take that time to do that in that moment. So then if you're going to do it offline, you know, let's say in the afternoon or something, then you can always invite the the experienced APP to the to the discussion. They're welcome to join if they if they want to. Uh, but then it's not like, hey, everyone, let's make sure we all kind of regurgitate these basic uh, facts over and over again. Yeah, it can be more targeted. Brandon, I think you made a good point when you talked about the non-hierarchical nature of teaching. And this is something that I noticed when I became an NP that was a little surprising to me. And maybe this is just me or my personal experience, but in the nursing world, at least my experience, this this doesn't really happen, right? The people who teach are the people who are old and experienced, uh, and the people who are learn are the people who are young, and that's how it goes. And I remember, you know, I'm one thing is I'm very fortunate. I work with a team of attendings who all, I mean, seem to at least genuinely enjoy each other. Um, you know, we all get along with them. They all get along with each other and with us. They're all relatively young um, and all, you know, fairly similar, at least within a few years of their training, right? So there's not somebody who's the, you know, a guy who's been here for 40 years um, and somebody who's brand new. They're all, you know, they all trained within the last, for the most part, within the last 10 years or so. Um, but, you know, I would overhear a couple of our attendings talking and, you know, it would be like the, the guy who just finished fellowship last year talking to the guy who finished fellowship five years ago and talking about, you know, this podcast he'd listened to, or this paper he'd read or teaching him the way he did stuff. And I just, it was very surprising to me, again, coming from this background where a junior nurse would never go to an experienced nurse and say, let me tell you how you could be better. Um, and, and so I think that for nurse practitioners, at least I don't know about PAs, that can be a little surprising and maybe even, you know, you sort of get this idea that when, if somebody starts quote teaching you stuff, that they're looking down on you when it's not the case, right? I don't think that's the case at all. Like, like you said, Matt, that everybody can learn stuff about different things and people bring different things to the table. Um, and just because you've been doing something for a long time doesn't mean you can't learn something and vice versa. Well, maybe the word is, you know, teaching is, is already too loaded. Something like sharing, you know, it, yeah. where the connotation is, this is how I do it, or this has been my experience. Cause that, that's, that, you can't argue with that. If you start to sound like this is the truth, let me impart it to you, then they're going to be like, 
piss off. But but that's again true at every level. I, even someone who clearly is senior or smarter than me, I don't really want to hear about the truth from them because I don't really think they have the truth. But I'm interested in their perspective. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. There's there there's very little that's the truth in in critical care, particularly. And I think if, if you just think about the people on this call right now, we all have different background experiences, uh, taking care of different patient groups. And I know there's all things that we could learn from each other. So it's just a matter of, uh, you know, somehow making it safe, whether you want to say this is just like a something I noticed or something, you know, I've appreciated over time or however you want to say it. that gets a little messy sometimes because like experiential knowledge is, you know, has its weaknesses or whatever. But one thing that we need to be aware of uh, with uh, our distance from training, though, and, you know, thinking about this one year person out versus a five year or 10 year person out is there's some decent performance data that say the farther you get out from training, the less likely you are to, uh, you know, have be sort of up to date uh, on on patient care and uh, and what's the latest medical knowledge and, and especially skills. So I think we definitely have things to learn from people that are junior to us and the in the you know traditional uh, way of thinking about that. Uh, it's just a matter of can we can our environments that we work in make that uh, conducive or not conducive? Because yeah, if you frame it as I'm going to give a lecture, and if you think you know you, if, if that doesn't if that you know makes you recoil because you're like I've been doing this for a while, uh, yeah, I mean that's that's not probably the right way to frame it. Uh, so we just have to be I think a little careful with our language sometimes. Well, I th I think that gets to we're kind of talking about flattening hierarchies and things, which is great, but there also is a hierarchy that cannot be flattened. So when it comes to actually making decisions, I, there are always the potential for disagreements about how to manage patients, what to do in certain situations. And if you have maybe an APP who's very new and inexperienced, this may be a little more straightforward because they probably don't have a lot of opinions. It may be a little... Uh, obnoxious because you have to do more work. But if you're supervising someone who is more experienced, this probably has more potential to come up. And, you know, all APPs are different in how many opinions they have and how opinionated they are and how good their opinions are, perfectly honest. But, it, and I'm sure this comes up as well, supervising other physicians. Um, but do you feel like there's a a trick to doing this effectively? Because I think this can be one of the areas that creates a lot of conflict. Uh, you have an APP who says, you know, I, my attending or many of the attendings I work with uh, are not allowing me, you know, enough autonomy to make decisions or we just don't seem to agree on very much. Or even like, I don't think they do things wrong, but they do things differently than me and they won't let me do it my way. Um, that can be um, challenging, I think. Yeah, the, the thing that really uh, becomes difficult is uh, knowing where to give up control and where I need to retain it. And I think just based on the conversation we just had about what how much truth is there really in what we do, I think that's where that, that, that little bit of humility is needed on the person that's in my position. Say if the person, and I, again, I would view it the same as if a, a fellow brought up an idea. I think if it's a, a reasonable idea, and I don't have a super strong, uh, you know, evidence-based reason to, or physiologically rational uh, reason to do it differently. Then I think it's reasonable to do that. And in fact, there's some the, some of the best things you can do is just not get involved in small decisions, right? So if I'm working with somebody that's experiences you two, and it's something that you and I see every day, we probably don't need to talk about every little minute detail about the case. We might want to talk about, you know, a couple of core 
issues, like whatever the primary and secondary organ failures are, we should focus on those and talk about those a little more in depth. But like, let's not talk about nitty gritty details when you already know how to do this stuff. It's all we're doing is wasting our mental bandwidth for it. So those kind of things, like those are definitely not the hill to die on. Uh, if it's kind of in between, you're like, well, I don't, I don't really uh, know that this is, you know, I think, I think what you, what this APP is saying makes sense. It's not the way that I would do it, but it's rational. Then, okay, you can do it. I think the best thing that someone in my position can just do is if you're going to disagree with the plan, you have to give a reason for it. And it could be a good reason like, Hey, this is a class one indication, uh, for this medication in this case, which almost never happens. Uh, but other times it's just like, uh, this is the way that I'm comfortable doing things. And if that's really true, then you just have to own it. Sometimes it's like, I didn't do it this way once and I got burned, which is like the worst way to do things, but at least you're being upfront and honest about it. Those are the kind of, that's the kind of transparency I think we need to make those those decisions go a little bit smoother. There are times though, I'll be honest with you, where the person that I'm working with is saying something that's just like frankly wrong. And uh, and they may be 10 years experience. And I, I it's my it's my duty to correct that, right? So I, I have to... Uh, you know, be a little bit more assertive and say, and explain why still, but say, that's not something that we're going to do. I know that's something you do with other people. Uh, that's something you've been doing for years, but it is not a defensible action. And I'm not going, we're not going to do that. So it's, but that's a, that's rare. That's like probably less than 10%, maybe less than 5% of the time where I have to, you know, be so assertive. It gets easier, I think, uh, as you get farther away from training, right? Because when you first come out, you want to control everything. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm loosening up a little bit on this, but it is, uh, it's an ongoing area for, uh, growth and improvement for me as well. But I think that's how you navigate those kinds of situations. There's very rarely a time where you're going to be diametrically opposed from the person you're working with in a way that it's going to be a, like a major conflict, as long as you can both come with, uh, an open mind and some humility. I imagine it's hard, huh? I mean, I, I've definitely worked with attendings who are, are unable or unwilling to, you know, loosen the reins of their approach. And sometimes I think it's just their, if type A is the right word, they're, they are very interested in the details. But sometimes I think they just, they enjoy it. And I could see that. Like, they like, you know, doing the medicine down to the details and letting someone else do it is not why they got into this. And I, I sort of respect that, although I kind of feel like this is not the right staffing model for them to work in because they do work with other people. I, I feel bad for attending sometimes because I feel like you guys get a disproportionate amount of the blame and a disproportionate lack of the credit. Right. So like one example, and I think this applies residents do this too. I don't, I don't think I do it intentionally, but it's some sort of a side effect, right? If I'm working with a, you know, I'm, we're a consult ICU service. So if my primary surgery service comes to me and says, we want you to do X, Y, and Z. Well, if I agree with them and say, yeah, we should do X, Y, and Z, and my attending doesn't want to do it, my attending is the one that gets the blame, right? Because I say, yeah, it sounds reasonable. Let me run it by my attending. And then I have to call back and go, no, my attending doesn't want to do that, right? They don't want to extubate that patient. Um, but if I, my, if my attending agrees with them, then they don't get any of the credit because I go, yeah, that sounds good. Let me run it by my attending. And we just do it. And even if I disagree, I might go, uh, I don't know, let me run that by my attending and my attending agrees, then he still really doesn't get the credit because I'm the one that's going to be communicating. Ultimately, I'm calling the surgeon and going, all right, yeah, we're going to do this, right? So I do feel like you guys are in a position where, the, and I think sometimes as APPs, we lose sight of this, that ultimately the responsibility does fall to you, right? If something is going to go wrong, you're going to get the bulk of the blame regardless of, you know, unless I just did something without talking to you. Um, and so I do think that the, 
APPs maybe need to have a little bit of grace for that at times. Yeah. And I think if you're working with somebody, I, I agree, there's like some you know, relationship dynamic issues there, especially when you're working with another team that always, you know, adds a level of complexity. And sometimes, unfortunately, the APP is like stuck in the middle and they and that that is often the most unenviable position because then you're just like you're fighting kind of two battles at the same time. Well, like, what if you don't agree with either party? That makes it even more difficult. Um, I think if you're talking about somebody who's just like, it's my way or the highway, then I mean, that's not a good relationship, but you know, there's people out there that are like that. And then you just kind of have to say, okay, this is not my week, right? Like, and that's how it was for me in training too, right? Like if I was gonna work with somebody who uh, needed to dot every T and you know dot every I and cross every T, then that's, that's, that's it. I'll be honest with you, I'm a pretty hands-on attending. Like I, I, I stay involved, I come back to the unit all the time. I like to, I'll put in IVs and stuff. I just like to be there. I like to take care of patients, that's why I come to work. Um, but the, the idea about that is then is like, we can all, there's a lot of overlap in the things that we can do. So we should help each other. That's the way that I think about it. Um, and, and if we're talking about like, just generally like the, the things that we do across the day, this is something that I was thinking about leading up to this uh, conversation we're having. Like, I remember when I first started uh, working in one of the regional hospitals with the APPs, they would do like the, the, the vast majority of the procedures. Uh, and I liked, I, I love doing procedures. I still do. People told me I get tired of doing central lines when I'm an attending. I still like doing them. But, uh, you know, so, so like, but I'm, I'm, I'm obviously receptive to that. Like, you know, that's why I like the, the team aspect. Like if you can, if you have time to do it and you're the primary person, you go ahead and do it. I'm, I'm here to help if you need me. But then I think we also need to extend that uh, workload to other things. Um, there are, there are people that I work with APPs, uh, who, uh, if, if a difficult conversation comes up, then all of a sudden it's the attending's responsibility. Um, and I'm like, well, you know, we're a team. I think we should all shoulder that too. If we can all intubate patients, we can all have a goals of care discussion. Right. So I, I think right. some of it is just like, we have to share, you know, all, all the responsibilities that can be shared amongst us. We have to figure out how we all work best together individually. Ideally, that would be sort of culturally normative, but I mean, there's just too many different personalities, too many different people with different strengths. Like, but you know, me working with one of you guys would probably be different than me working with someone else. So we all just kind of have to find our own styles together. But the the most uh, enjoyable way to do this is when it's all truly like a team sport, and I'm not just like sitting in an office somewhere signing notes and billing for critical care time. Right, you're like the CEO of the team. <laughs> right. Um, do you, yeah. did you find, cause I, uh, when you were, we said a fellow, you know, a handful of years ago, and I feel like fellows are, are right at that point in their training when this comes up. Did you feel when you were training that there were times when you, as you developed, you were kind of, uh, carving out space or, or clawing for the opportunity to have your own autonomy and kind of transition into that and to make more decisions. Um, and then, you know, as you, as you graduated and made this transition, did you have a different perspective on that? I mean, now you're supervising some of these people. Are there times when they come to you and they're like, yeah, I uh, pushed TPA and you're like, you did what now? Yeah. I think fortunately some of that comes down to the, you're right. The, the, the autonomy battle is always a battle. And I remember that as a, as a fellow, especially because you're like, I'm, you know, in two years or a year, I'm going to be doing this job independently. I need to be able to have my own space to make make decisions. Uh, and some of that ends up coming down to probably things that you you two deal with is like, uh, how does how does Matt feel about this intervention and this type of patient? You try to predict if the attending is going to be happy or not. Uh, those are the kind of things that I think were most frustrating about being a trainee and is the most liberating about being an attending is I don't I don't have to wonder if I'm going to make somebody happy or not with the decisions I make. I think the autonomy, 
one one of my colleagues uh, has a great sort of a, um, paradigm for this, where he says, for a trainee, you can have maximum autonomy and maximum supervision, uh, and those things can coexist. And that that would be the ideal circumstance for a trainee. To say, uh, I want you to make as many decisions as you can, but I don't want you to be unsupported, and I, I want to protect the patient from harm. That's kind of the way I like to think about it. We can make all kinds of mistakes in conversation, but let's try to let not make it let not let it reach the patient. But one of the most important things I can do as an attending is give the fellow, if it's a fellow team, give the fellow space or give the APP space, because then they will give space to the person that they are supervising. So if one of you has a student or a fellow, then that person gets a little bit more space. If it's a fellow, then they'll, they'll, the fellow will give the APP space or give the resident space, but it all has to start. So like, if I'm gonna dictate to you how to replace potassium, then there is no autonomy on that team. Um, but if I am like, uh, you know, you guys, you know, can deal with the vast majority of things, please just run X, Y, or Z by me before you do things like that. Then I think that gives everybody more space, but it's hard to do, right? I mean, especially, like I said, I'm pretty hands-on. Uh, I love to take care of patients. I want to be involved. I want to be at the bedside, but it's not out of lack of trust. So I think it's just a matter of showing people, uh, why you do the things that you do. And then you, you can create more space for people to have open conversations with you about things they'd like to do differently. So speaking of training, when you're a fellow, I assume whether it's a formal thing or just informal, part of that is learning how to manage the residents, right? Because you're sort of a junior attending or, you know, whatever. Do you guys get any? Do you guys get any training, formal or informal, in how to work with APPs? Because I think APPs and residents are extremely different, even though we're sort of doing the same jobs, and in a lot of ways, on the surface, we seem very similar. Um, do you guys do you guys get any sort of training or teaching in that? We have here. We're we're lucky here to have some uh, interprofessional uh, health education training, like uh, how to how to leverage the strengths of different groups and things like that. So it includes not only APPs residents, but also allied health professionals that we work with. So I think that is a, a, a rel I don't I don't know how many places have that. I think it's a relative strength of what we have here. But I do still think the vast majority of it occurs. Uh, in the informal curriculum at the bedside and things like that. Uh, and that's something that's pretty quick, pretty easy to learn. You know, you go talk to a new intern, uh, you know, before rounds, like as when I'm a fellow, I go talk to a new intern during the rounds. You hope that they have some idea what's going on. Whereas the the APP, especially if they're experienced, probably has everything like already kind of buttoned up and you're just kind of uh, touching base and make sure that things are, are taken care of. So it's the as I think as long as you respect that the dynamics are different. But as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, it really depends on the level of training of whoever you're working with, whether it's an APP, a resident, or a fellow. So you every day you're titrating what you're doing to the people that you're working with. Well, that's a good point because I think that you know I think like Brandon mentioned earlier residents are sort of a known quantity to a certain degree, right? You're a first year, you're a second year, third year resident. I kind of know what to expect, right? You know, there's some, certainly some junior residents who are better than others, but a junior resident knows certain things and we can expect certain things from them and not other things versus, you know, an NP or a PA who's been out of school for a year is very different from an NP or PA who's been out of school for 10 years or 20 years, right? We have people on our team who have been doing this less than two years. We have people on our team that have been doing it around 10 years. And we have some people that have been doing it for 15 plus years, right? And I think those are very different. Yeah, they are. I think the important difference though is just, I mean, I, I, I try not to 
assume what somebody's baseline knowledge should be based on their experience or their PGY level or things like that, because it is such a why. I mean, the 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 bell curve is, is so broad and wide here. I just don't even know where somebody is until I work with them. So I kind of just, you know, I, I presume that when people are coming to work that they're trying their best and they're, and they're doing uh, the best that they can based on the knowledge that they have. But I don't presume that the knowledge that they have is where some, you know, some arbitrary level where I think it should be. And I think it just makes things uh, easier and safer. I don't want to presume uh, any any knowledge. I don't want to presume any background knowledge for any other practitioner. I think it's actually kind of dangerous because uh, sometimes people don't want to admit that they maybe haven't experienced something before or done something before. So it, I think it's better off to maybe come at it a little bit more of a blank slate and not not make assumptions unless you actually have a background experience of working with this person. When you talk about the this autonomy question, I I'm gonna float a theory by you, and you tell me if you agree with it. But it seems to me that one of the considerations, and this is not just for APPs, but it applies in other settings, is that there should probably be a certain amount of deference paid to the decision making of the person who is at the bedside. In other words, other people may have an opinion or perspective on things, but the person who's actually implementing them and is like physically with patients most of the time, which is typically the APP in this situation, it could be others, but they uh, probably have at least some insight that a person who is not there would. So that, that could apply with an attending who is... <clears throat> on and off the unit during the day, but certainly things like off hours at nights. I mean, in a classic situation, you know, you have nighttime staffing by APP and maybe an attending who's at home or there's like one person in the hospital floating around. And realistically, even though in theory, the person who's on call for this unit could come and be there, they're not usually, in, you know, unless there's full-time nighttime in-house staffing. And even then they probably want to be asleep some of the time, but you can call people, but realistically, you kind of don't want to because they should sleep, and it's even a higher bar for them to physically come in there. And you can, on paper, say, like, hey, this person can is available all the time, but that's not, like, a real suggestion. So it's you end up, I think, having to say that the person who's there is making the best decisions they can make, and we should have some respect for that. They could still be wrong, but we should be a little slower to say they were wrong because we weren't there. <laughs> and unless we're volunteering to be there, which is not a real offer, they're not going to be there, then, um, you know, they did what made sense at the time. That gets sort of to a larger issue of uh, what, what level of uh, trust and understanding do you have around your teams? Uh, and that, that could be a nighttime, daytime thing. It could be like, oh, I just picked up the service uh, from whoever came before me. But it, it, it's it's a real issue. And I do think we should be paying some, at least, you know, some baseline level of credit to the fact that the person, the people I work with, I trust them and I understand that they made the best decision they had with the information they have had at the time. One of the ways that I think that this could be enhanced, and this is a, a battle that I'm always kind of fighting, is uh, please document somewhere why you did what you did. And then it becomes a little bit more clear that it was a thoughtful decision rather than, uh, the patient had low urine output, so I gave him a liter of fluid, right? Like there's, there's just, um, you know, there's, there's some thought processes that, that you all are going through. You may be doing very advanced things, but all we see is uh, the PEEP is now at 13. Um, so like, I don't know what that means, 
right? So I think it's just a matter of having a way to quote unquote defend your actions. And I don't mean that in any sort of punitive or legal sense, but just so that other people understand how you got to the point you got to, if especially if they were not there to witness uh, everything that transpired. I think that's something that is not about APP or physician. It's just about the fact that if you're the person there and you're making complex decisions at the bedside, there should be some sort of documentation so that we all uh, understand how we got to where we are. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and especially in cases where they're not going to be there to discuss it, like the classic daytime team comes in and they're standing around and around being like, what do these jokers do overnight? Well, you know, if you wrote a note or something, then, and yeah, you can start to feel like you're defending yourself in this court of the daytime, but you know, it's, it's fair. Like they don't know what happened. <laughs> I also, I kind of feel that there's a culture and I think surgery is much better at this of giving some free reign to trainees, you know, experienced trainees, like a chief or maybe a fellow, to make decisions and to be wrong. And then they'll, they'll come in, you know, like maybe a, a chief is fielding consults, making decisions overnight, and the attendant comes the next day and they have to explain them. And they might say, that was the wrong thing to do. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't have made the decision. Like, you are not a wrong person. <laughs> it was just wrong. And that's sort of okay. Now, if you are routinely very wrong or something, you know, you could have a pattern. But that, I think that's still different from, I think, probably the culture in a lot of medical worlds where I don't think people even feel like they have the freedom to be wrong, like, once. Like, the, even the possibility would make them shy away from making a decision. And that ends up being a much smaller box than if you were, you know, the option was on the table and it's okay in a more general way. Yeah, there's a, something about the way that we uh, do things and, and the way that you describe that makes us more likely to underdevelop people's decision-making skills. Because if you have decision paralysis, unless you get a sign-off uh, from whoever's supervising you, then it makes it very hard to become independent. So I, I'm, I'm very... Uh, Cognizant of that, uh, even though, you know, our, like you said, our environment doesn't necessarily always make make that something that's easy to do. I think there are things that we have to realize are super time sensitive. And those are the things that I get upset about. Uh, if I find that somebody has been, you know, in shock all night and no one wanted to put in a central line because of X, Y and Z or, you know, we didn't give antibiotics to somebody who was, looks like they've been septic for a couple hours or. Um, this person has been struggling on a ventilator for the last three hours and it would take a relatively easy adjustment to you know, like, there are things like that as like low hanging fruit that let's not make any, let's not increase anyone's risk of morbidity or mortality or, or make anybody suffer unnecessarily that I think is time sensitive, but you can still teach that. You just have to make sure that you've, cr you've created the urgency and your team to recognize those things and recognize that they need to be dealt with quickly. And then I think once you have that system in place, then you have the ability to, uh, uh, you know, loosen the reins a little bit and let people, uh, yeah, be a little more independent and make those kind of decisions. Uh, it is uh, in our in our setting. You know, most of our larger ICUs have in-house coverage with uh, some combination of trainees and and an attending physician. So the the time lag to making to to decisions uh, being missed of things that are relevant is is lower. It's not zero, but it does require some level of vigilance to to watch out for those kind of things. But yeah, I, I do think you can create an environment in which you can let uh, more senior trainees or more senior APPs make more independent decisions, assuming that you have a clear culture of what things are not going to uh, abide uh, in the meanwhile. Yeah, it would be great to have like a 
a, a protocol or something so people know what things have to be escalated, even if it's customized for, you know, the two of you. Because the, you know, the the committee, like, C-suite answer would be you, you escalate everything to whoever's in charge. But that that's it's just not a real answer, and not just for reasons like people are too busy or want to sleep or things like that, but I, I just, I, I really don't think that if you have maybe some smaller matter and you wake someone up at 2 a.m. or you, know, you pull someone out of a, a meeting or something to take a call and you tell them about this thing and you've been dealing with it for an hour and a half, but they just heard about it 10 seconds ago. They haven't seen the patient. They don't have any of their perspective that you have. I don't think you're going to necessarily get a better decision out of them. <laughs> It's, it has more experience or whatever, but they're missing a lot of things as well. So just saying, oh, you know, that do that for every decision, I'm pretty sure is not, you know, the, the ideal answer. But No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're asking somebody to make a context-free or a context-limited decision uh, in, in, in a time that they might not be in the right place to do that. If they're in the middle of a meeting where they're presenting or something and uh, you're not going to catch them in the right headspace or you just woke them up and they're still you still can't quite tell if they're awake or not when you're talking to them. Like that, that's not, the, that's not the person that's going to be helpful to you. Uh, so I, I, I definitely, uh, agree with you on that. You said that you guys have just started the APP fellowship. D has that changed any of this? I, my first instinct was that that would have made things more complicated, but now I, I wonder maybe it's actually easier because at least you're finding these people in a more structured setting and maybe a, you know, established curriculum, things they need and so on. Yeah, we're so early into this, it's very difficult to tell uh, the impact of it just yet, but I am excited to see how it works to have somebody. And we already had a pretty uh, well-regimented, well-structured orientation program for new hires for our APPs. So I think this is going to be, uh, you know, incrementally beneficial. Um, I don't know how how much of an increment, but I, I do think it's, uh, it'll. It, yeah, I, I think there's there's places for, for us to be a little more clear about the fact that you're still a learner. And I think that is something that at least psychologically makes it a little safer to ask questions that you maybe wouldn't want to ask if you were fresh out of the gate uh, and trying to, you know, show your competence. Because I think we all have that. We all, we get done with whatever program we're in and we're in a, a independent practice or a you know, collaborative practice setting and we're all of a sudden supposed to know everything, which is nonsense. But a lot of us, you know, feel that way and, and have a lot of uh, trepidations about admitting when we have gaps in our knowledge. All right. What else should we say? Brian, any other questions? Well, I guess let me just pose this question to you since you, you know, you said you sort of felt you were fortunate that you, you got some formal or informal at least training and stuff with this. For the physicians out there who have never worked with APPs or maybe who have limited work with APPs, what, uh, what advice would you give them? I think the most important thing that you can do when you're working with uh, a, a healthcare professional from a background that you're not familiar with is to go into it uh, with a attitude of humility and understanding to try to understand where these where where the person that you're coming that you're working with is coming from, because again everyone's different uh, and and the the level of preparation and the level of investment uh, that you're going to get from different people is going to vary widely and that is not a statement about APPs that is a, a statement about human beings. Uh, I think there there are you know kind of been like not stepping into this muck at all this whole conversation but there's a whole legion of physicians who feels threatened by the presence of APPs um, I'm obviously not one of them uh, but there are, there are people out there who I think have uh, 
fears about uh, scope of practice and what that means for their professional livelihood and what that means for patient care. And I think the best thing that people that have those trepidations but actually have never worked with an APP before need to definitely go into it with an open mind and understand uh, the value added by having trained professionals who do this every day who might do it more more days of the week or more day, more weeks of the year than you do uh, and re recognize that they have things to offer, not only in the way that they take care of patients, but the fact that they can help you understand uh, the system you work in, the type of patients that you take care of. And and just the fact that it's it's a lot of fun to to work with a, another you know trained professional and and, and again the, the teamwork aspect I don't know how it works in other settings but in the ICU it's it's great because it is a it's a it really enhances the teamwork aspect of it and it makes it more fun if you feel like you're taking care of patients independently in the ICU no matter what your uh, station is uh, you're doing something wrong number one and number two you're missing out on a lot of the fun parts yeah that's I think a something I often say too you know. These topics can sometimes seem a little onerous, and every APP has the the occasional time when they're like, "Man, I wish I could just do whatever I want, and there'd be no one telling me otherwise." But that's not anyone. It doesn't matter what your level is. You have a boss, and you have colleagues, and an employer, and someone who can sit you down and and say you were wrong and you were dumb, or get lost. You don't have a job here, or put you in court. Um, there is nobody who has no fetters on their decision-making and probably nobody who should. You Absolutely. don't want that guy taking care of you. So this is kind of a um, making making explicit something that is uh, applies to everyone, I think. Definitely. All right, Matt, we'll let you go. Well, we are always so thrilled to have you. We'll, we'll try to... Uh, get you set up with something more exciting soon, but I know everyone enjoys a little Matt Shuba action. Thanks to you both again. Uh, love the podcast. Always happy to listen and always happy to come back on. Mm -hmm.